We're going to be in Genesis 32 today. Have you looked at the website recently? We've added uh, stories that go along with this series that we're doing, and there's a particular story, Sean Gerhardt's name is right up here, that I thought fit perfectly with the story or with the sermon today, but just knew we weren't going to have time for him to share it. So read his story, and we're going to link a video of him where you can hear and, and listen to his story about how God changed him, how he reued him. That's the title of this series is Reu. And it's about becoming the person God always intended and you've always longed to be. So each week of the the series, we've seen biblical characters being reued. And along the way, we've noticed that God uses a particular process in the work. That process puts people through three stages, repeated again and again over the course of their lives. The first stage is insight, resulting from God's revelation. The second stage culminates in decision, and the third stage is about implementation. Insight, decision, implementation. So here's the question. What if you think you don't need to be reused? I may not be perfect, but uh, I'm no worse than the next guy. I mean, I've got problems, but who doesn't? And anyways, I always manage to get by. And maybe you haven't noticed, but I'm doing pretty well for myself. You know, what do you do with a guy who doesn't think he needs to be reued? Today we're looking at that kind of a fellow. Um, even though he'd gotten into some tough spots over the years, he always seemed to come out on top. I mean, it's true, his tactics weren't always above board. On more than one occasion, he stretched the truth, but he felt like he did what he had to do. He'd been on his own since he was young. He thought of himself as the kind of guy who knows how to handle himself. But through a series of revelations from God and insights, coupled with an unexpected set of circumstances, he began to reu, Or rather, God began to change him into the person he was always meant to be. The man's name was Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. He was the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, and the twin brother of Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau were taught from their earliest days about the covenant promises that God had made to their grandfather and then reissued to their father. Promises of God's presence, of offspring who would be heirs, and of a land to be given to Abraham and his descendants. Now, it seems to me from reading a story that Jacob was not too much interested in the promise of God's presence and maybe not even in the promise of heirs, but he was interested in the promise of land. Unfortunately for Jacob, the principal heir of the covenant promises would be his twin brother, who was older than him by a matter of minutes. But Jacob was a wheeler dealer. He was a shrewd operator, maybe even a flim-flam man. The name Jacob actually means trickster. That's what he did. Once Jacob knew what he wanted... He figured out a way to get it. From the time he was young, hearing these stories, he wanted the birthright that belonged to his twin brother Esau. And when an opportunity arose, he got it. Then when he wanted the blessing that went with the birthright, he got that too. And if it took a little deceit, maybe a lot of deceit, and some familial conflict to get what he wanted, that was a price that Jacob was willing to pay. 
Jacob manipulated his brother into getting the birthright. Then he tricked his father into giving him the blessing that went with it. But in so doing, he split his family right in two. His mom and he on one side, his brother and his dad on the other. His brother was so angry with him that he could have killed him. His parents, worried about their boys, sent Jacob off to live with his uncle Laban. But what seemed like a short-term expediency turned into a long-term lifestyle. Jacob settled down. He got married, and he lived away from home for decades. His mother grew old and died while he was away, and he never saw her again. In his new surroundings, he went to work for his uncle, and he made quite a life for himself. Now, it's true that his uncle, who had more than a little larceny in him too, tricked Jacob and tried to use him, but over the years, Jacob more than got even. But that led to hard feelings and eventually to a split between them. And you see this happening in Jacob's life. After decades of living abroad, he decided he had to move home. But there was a problem. His brother Esau, who was absolutely filled with rage and wanted to kill him the last time he saw him, was still living there. And Esau would hear that Jacob had come home. But surely after all these years, Jacob thought, his brother wouldn't still be holding a grudge. He knew Esau. He was a fire that burned itself out quickly. He's always in a hurry. He's always on the go. Whatever was going on right now was the most important thing in the world to him. What happened in the past was forgotten. So Jacob figured he could manage the situation. But being the shrewd operator that he was, he decided that he would work the angles anyway. So he wrote a note to Esau which he thought was going to smooth the way for him. Now, we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 32 with verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir. So remember, he has to move back home, but he sends this message to his brother in the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. Each line of that note was crafted to produce an effect. I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. That was meant to assure his brother that he had not been sneaking around behind his back making plans. He was different now. He'd grown up. The next line, I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. He's telling his brother, I'm not going to try to hit you up for anything. I don't need anything. You don't need to worry. That's not why I'm coming home. I'm not coming to get anything from you. The next line, and note the respectful tone. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. That's way, Jacob's way of saying, look, I know there's bad blood between us, but that was a long time ago. Hey, I'm willing to let the whole thing drop. Let bygones be bygones. I can imagine Jacob sending off that message and then sitting back with a look of satisfaction on his face. Yeah, Esau isn't going to be a problem. I mean, I've always been able to manage him. After all, I am the smarter brother. He'll come along. It'll be okay. 
What a surprise it was to Jacob when the messengers returned with word that Esau was on his way to meet him, and he was coming with 400 men. This is verse 6. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. That's like a small army, only not so small. For the first time in his life, Jacob began to feel that maybe he might not be capable of handling what was coming. Who would have thought that his brother would still be angry after all these years? He had misread the situation. A thousand things went through Jacob's mind. He could turn and try to escape, but with flocks of sheep and herds of cattle, there was no way that he could move quickly enough to outrun Esau. He was bringing everything he owned back with him. He could leave the sheep and cattle, but they represented his life's work. In that society, sheep and cattle were money. Without them, he'd be broke. He'd be a nobody. And he wasn't willing to go back to that. Verse 7, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that's left may escape. Now, Jacob was really good at thinking on his feet, but he knew that dividing into two groups was not much of a plan. He just didn't know what else to do. Well, yes, he did. He did something that he hardly ever did. In fact, this is the first time in the long story of Jacob that we see him doing it. He prayed. It's interesting. It wasn't until Jacob was in the biggest trouble of his life and couldn't see a way out that he finally turned to God. Always before, he'd been able to figure out a way to get by, a way to get through, and he'd always succeeded. But not this time. He knew that dividing up into two groups was a long shot, and even if it worked, only one group would escape. So look at his prayer. This is verses 9 through 12. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac... Uh, Let me say this before I read this. There are two ways to take this prayer. I take it one way. Others have taken it another way. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. You know, to me that sounds so much like Jacob. It's as if he can think he can wheedle God into doing something. Look, God, you're the one who told me to come back. I didn't want to come back. It was all you, so you sort of owe me. Verse 10. In verse 10, he turns on the charm, and along with it, a heavy dose of humility. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two groups. If the guilt trip doesn't work on God, maybe the humility might. Verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau for I'm afraid he'll come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. See, it's not just me, God. I'm not thinking about myself, really. I mean, there's children, there's mothers. This is about them. And then back to cajoling God. But you said, I will surely make you prosper. That's what you said. And will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which can't be counted. Now, you can also read that and think, there's nothing wrong with Jacob's prayer. He's just standing on God's promises. Well, maybe, but he's never stood there before. This is the very first time. 
And it all depends on Jacob's attitude. I'm afraid instead of throwing himself at God's feet and asking for mercy, Jacob was trying to hold something over God's head in order to get what he wanted. He hasn't yet realized that God is so high and exalted that we can't possibly hold anything over his head. Now, it's often pointed out that Jacob was a deceiver, and that's true. He used deceit again and again, pretty much every time he got in trouble. But I think Jacob had a bigger issue than that, a more fundamental issue than that. Deceit was only a corollary sin. It was a symptom of a foundational defect in his life. Jacob thought he was self-sufficient. He chose to believe in himself rather than in God. He trusted his wiles more than God's love. But now for the first time, he realizes on some deep level that his own abilities may not be enough. He's in trouble, and he knows it. His prayer, though I think it's immature and betrays a lack of understanding about God, is nevertheless a start. I mean, you see, one other time when Jacob talks about God in a way that's sort of spiritual, but never a prayer until now. This is a start. His realization that the Lord is God and that Jacob is not represents a fundamental shift in his thinking. Nevertheless, he hardly concludes his prayer before he starts scheming again. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Last week we saw that even after we've had a genuine insight into the truth, the forward motion of our sinful patterns can carry us on. And that's what's happening to Jacob. His insight was real, but he was still caught in the gravity of his old habits. It would take insight plus decision plus implementation for him to escape, to reach an escape velocity and break out of his destructive behaviors. As soon as Jacob finished his prayer, he had a plan. In, in advance of his brother's arrival, this is what he was going to do. He would send gifts, 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 camels, 50 cows, 30 donkeys. That's a gift, Professor John Walton says, that's bigger than most towns paid in tribute to a foreign king. Of course, Jacob was hoping to appease Esau maybe to make him feel like he'd been paid back for the theft of his birthright. But as always, crafty Jacob had more than one thing going on in his head. He knew that if Esau accepted the gifts, which he intended to send in five separate waves, that he and his 400 men would have to stop five times. They would be encumbered with the care of over 500 animals. So if even, thing, even if things went badly... It would be hard for them to chase Jacob while tending all these animals. So Jacob sent the animals ahead and his family across the Jabbok River. And then he waited alone. On this night, he had no confidence that his scheme was going to work. For the first time in his life, he realized that he was not sufficient in himself to handle the situation. Have you ever had that insight? This is more than I can do. The text says that Jacob was left alone. That probably didn't happen very often. He did, after all, have more than a dozen children, two wives, a large staff of household servants, and business employees. So tonight, 
for what might have been the first time in a long time, Jacob was alone. And when he was alone, a very strange thing happened. A man, and you read the prophet Hosea, prophet Hosea calls him an angel. An angel, a man, suddenly appeared and wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. Wrestled. Big time wrestling going on on the banks of the Jabbok River. The text doesn't say why the man wrestled with him. I mean, in one way, the whole thing is really bizarre. Here was old Jacob, and he was an old man by this time. And he's in a grappling contest. Was it a vision or a dream? Perhaps, but if it was, that doesn't make the experience any less significant. Did Jacob even know who it was he wrestled? Maybe not, at least at first. Certainly did by the end of the match. Now, it would be a mistake to think of this as primarily a physical contest. If Jacob's opponent is indeed an angel, he could have reduced the old patriarch to dust by a touch of his finger. Now, this is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual contest, a contest, I think, of will. The angel was sent to Jacob, who had just prayed, when he was unsure and vulnerable which was an optimal time for Jacob to finally do what he needed to do and surrender to God. But that wasn't what Jacob had in mind. He still thought he could find a way to come out on top. But as the night wore on, he began to realize that this opponent was too much for him. But if his divine opponent was so strong, why didn't he just finish Jacob off? Because he hadn't come to finish him off. He didn't want to finish him. He wanted to re-you him. He wanted to make old Jacob into a new man. But for that to happen, Jacob would have to surrender of his own free will. Jacob, however, continued striving against his opponent. When morning dawned, Jacob had still not surrendered. So the divine wrestler touched Jacob's hip. That's all, he just touched it. And Jacob was seriously injured. But still he wouldn't surrender. How like us that is. We won't yield to God if we think there's any other possibility. We hold on convinced that we either must or we can do it by ourselves. We do everything we can to avoid the defeat that is really victory. The surrender that is conquest. There are victories, George MacDonald said, that are far worse than defeats. And I'm afraid Jacob had had many such victories in his lifetime, and each one moved him further and further from his maker. Of course, God could take him or us by force. But we would never be made new that way. We have to give ourselves to him of our own accord. But if, like Jacob, we refuse to surrender, we need to know this. We will not walk away uninjured. There on that grassy spot next to the Jabbok, God humbled Jacob. He wore him down. He weakened his resistance. He put him in his place. Deprived of his sense of self-sufficiency, Jacob realized that neither his wits nor his might were going to suffice against this enemy. He stopped trying to win. He just tried to hold on. And he asked for a blessing. Now, I don't know that I understand what happened to Jacob during the course of that night. But something happened. 
We can see this because his divine opponent blessed him and gave him a new name. Instead of Jacob the deceiver, he was given the name Israel. In the Bible, a change of name is always significant. It represents a change in the person, a change of status or of relationship or of character. So you see what's going on here? Jacob has to be unmade before God can remake him into the person he was always intended to be. On that night on the banks of the Jabbok, Jacob lost something. He lost his confidence. He lost himself. But that was a loss that was really a gain. He had to lose that false, proud, conniving self before he could become, begin to become his true self. See, until we are holy gods, we can never really be ourselves. The change in Jacob following this night may not be obvious, but it is noticeable. I'll give you some examples. He insists on returning to Esau the blessing, what he had taken from him. Even after he knows that Esau does not intend to harm him. Even after Esau tells him, he doesn't need this. He's fine. Don't, I don't need any of it. But Esau gives it to, or Jacob gives it to him anyways. He addresses his brother as Lord. He gives him the blessing. I think this is very significant. He gives him the blessing of the firstborn. And the change in the way he relates to God is noticeable too. He now recognizes God as the one who gave him his children. He credits God and not his hard work as he had done before. Now he credits God for all his wealth. He speaks of the joy of seeing God's face. When Jacob crosses the Jabbok, we see an old man who is being made new. It's encouraging to me that you don't have to start when you're this big. God can work in your life all through your life. Throughout his life, Jacob always thought that his problems were out there. His wives were a problem. His former boss was a problem. His brother was a problem. But his big problem was always in here. And until that began to change, all those problems out there were absolutely necessary. God left them there. But they weren't so necessary once his character began to change. Once that happened, it's interesting to note that his conflicts began to dissipate, to go away. From my reading of the story, I doubt very much that Esau ever had any evil intentions against his brother when he set out with his 400 men. Maybe he wanted to impress Jacob with his success. Uh, be, remember, he had just received Jacob's letter with his reference to all of his possessions. Maybe there was some brotherly competition in this. But more likely, I think, when Esau heard that Jacob was traveling to him with his family through that dangerous borderland, haunted by raiders and thieves, he gathered up his men and he set out to surround Jacob's family and his flocks in order to protect them until they could reach safety. But Jacob, like many of those with a guilty conscience, totally misread his brother's intentions. Now, something else here. Even after that night along the Jabbok and the genesis of the new Jacob, there was a lot of the old Jacob still present. 
as I mentioned a little earlier, the forward motion of our lives can carry us on in the wrong direction even after we've begun to change. Even after Jacob had been reconciled to his brother and his renewal had begun, he fell right back into the old habit of distorting the facts and using deception to protect himself. Now, does that mean that the renewal didn't take? No, it means that renewal takes time. Because change isn't complete doesn't mean that it hasn't begun or that it isn't real. And so with us, we can have a genuine encounter with God and begin a new life by faith in his son Jesus and still the forward motion of our lives can carry us on into old habits and sinful actions. When that happens, we mustn't despair. We must confess and turn again to God and hold on to him until he blesses us. Now, one last thing. The giving of a name in Scripture is always done by someone in authority, by a superior. In fact, just if you're interested, go through the Bible and find every time a person's name is changed. You'll find some fascinating things there. It's a great study. Every time a name is given, it's done by someone in authority. God has the authority to change Jacob's name because, among other things, he has the authority and the power to change his character. And he has the authority to change your name, too, for the very same reason. Only God can give a person his or her true name. That is, he alone can give you the great gift of being yourself. Apart from him, you will never be yourself. To the person who overcomes, who conquers by being conquered, who surrenders his way to victory, to the person who is reued by the Spirit, God will give a new name. Our names now are just labels. You can call me Shane, but you could call me something else. I mean... We just have labels now. But the name God will give us, a pet name, maybe, almost, the name a father loves to call his beloved child, will be the expression of what the father thinks of us. That name will be the picture of your true self, expressing your own unique and inimitable relationship with father. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, the Lord already knows our new name, though we will only find out what it is by overcoming. So what's keeping you from your new name, your true self? Whatever it is, you must overcome it. Is it as it was with Jacob? A sense of self-sufficiency? Is it pride, fear, greed? You have to win over that thing. There are battles for you to fight. But you'll only win by losing. By losing your old false self. You'll only conquer by being gloriously defeated. You'll have to surrender your way to victory. There's no other way. 
All right, let's pray. God, on that night, next to the Jabbok, you showed Jacob himself. In ways he probably didn't want to see. And Lord, you know we're just like that. There are things we don't want to see about ourselves. Things that need to be overcome, but that we want to bargain with. I pray you'll give us the great grace of showing us ourselves and instill us with a great longing of becoming our true selves. For this good gift, beautiful gift, we're totally dependent upon your son, Jesus. So work in us what will please you. In fact, what will please us in the long run. May Jesus see the travail of his soul in us and be satisfied. We ask this in his name and for his sake.